Welcome to In Conversation with Ocean Physio. In our first series, we're exploring what makes certain individuals strive to improve and help others well into their 70s and 80s. We're talking to inspirational people in their 80s and asking, what motivates them? In our second episode, we've hit the jackpot. What better person for ocean physio to talk to than probably the most famous person ever to grace our oceans? We're talking to the legendary sailor, Sir Robin Knox Johnston. Firstly, Sir Robin, a huge thank you for agreeing to come on our podcast. Well, you know perfectly well in lockdown, um, I, I, having dealt with all my garden furniture and done lots of bits for my boat, I've got thoroughly bored. <laughs> so when you, when you came up with your rather interesting invitation, I thought, yeah, that sounds fun, I'll do it. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much. Now, I'll just introduce you now. In many ways, you need absolutely no introduction, but just in case anyone has been living on the moon, Sir Robin Knox Johnson is a world famous sailor who 51 years ago in 1969 was the first person ever to sail single-handedly non-stop around the world. And in 1994, he won a second Jules Verne trophy alongside Sir Peter Blake for the fastest circumnavigation of the globe. And he was knighted in 1995. In 1996, he established the Clipper Round the World Yacht Race, which is held every two years, which allows amateur crews the opportunity to race around the world in identical yachts alongside a professional skipper. And that race continues to this day. In 2007, he also set a record as the oldest person to complete a round the world solar voyage at the age of 68. He's been named Yachtsman of the Year four times, most recently in 2015, age 75, after a solo transatlantic race. I mean, Sir Robin, I could go on. A life extremely well lived, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's, um, it's like everyone's life, isn't it? Um, we've only got one. Um, we only get the dress rehearsal. We don't get the first performance. So we've actually got to make the most of it, you know, paint it in bright colours, not in soft shades you know get out there and enjoy it i don't want to be 95 looking in the mirror shaving which i don't do anyway and saying i wish i'd done that i'd rather say yeah i had a go at that so robin you're you're 81 years old and you're one of only a handful of people who's truly transcended their sport to become a genuine household name sir edmund hillary muhammad ali sir roger bannister and your good friend, Sarvana Fines. But what absolutely fascinates me is what motivates you to continue to compete, improve, and challenge yourself now. But, but with... Well, the answer to that is a, a low, low threshold of boredom. <laughs> That's brilliant. But before we explore that, Robin, we have to discuss your history. And I want to try and put in context your achievement. And I did talk about if anyone's been living on the moon. Because the truth is that in 1969, people were significantly more confident of putting a person on the moon than they were of anyone sailing around the world single-handed, non-stop. So Neil Armstrong and his crew did successfully land on the moon that year. But what you achieved, 
they said it couldn't be done. At that time, just going back, what fascinates me is what made you feel that you could be the one? Now, that's an interesting question. Um, I was a Merchant Navy officer. Uh, I got 14 years in the Merchant Navy. So I'm a qualified navigator. I'm a seaman. And I built my boat in India um, with some Indian shipwrights. And I sailed her back from um, Bombay via Arabia, East and South Africa, and then nonstop from uh, Cape Town to London. Now, while we were doing that, Sir Francis Chichester, or then Francis Chichester, went round the world with one stop. That's right, yeah. He set off from, Eng he set off from England, stopped in Australia, and then completed his voyage. And at that time, that was an amazing achievement. And he was 64, I think. Was he? And, you know, I looked at it and I thought, well, that leaves one thing to be done. And um, if we don't do it first, the French will, and we'll never hear the last of it. <laughs> so, but but so, what made you feel that you could be the one? Well, I was 29. Um, I'm a, I've been a captain in the Merchant Navy by then. I'm, you know, at the right age to do these things. I'm still fit and young enough. Um, I got much more experience than people realised. In fact, the only person who said, watch out for Knox Johnston, when they looked at the nine of us who set off, was the editor of Yachting World, who'd been in the Merchant Navy, and he said, you don't understand how well-trained we are. Ah. And he said, then look at what this guy's already done. He's already done. He's built his boat. He's sailed 20,000 miles in it. Uh, including non-stop from Cape Town to London, which at that time was a very long voyage. It took 77 days with my brother and a friend. And he said, you know, this guy's got more than you appreciate. Well, that was encouraging. Unfortunately, he was the only one who thought that. <laughs> I remember a chap coming up to me in cows. I was, I was a reservist and I was on a frigate at the time. And um, I got my boat over in cows having some work done to it. And this chap came up in his blazer and tie and all the rest of it and said, Are you this Johnny who thinks you're going to sail single-handed non-stop around the world? I said, well, I'm going to have a go at it. He said, well, it can't be done. In any case, you couldn't do it. And I thought, you never met me in the boxing room, pal. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, I said to him, um, you're not a school teacher, are you? No, certainly not. Why? I said, because you'd be bloody depressing for your students. He said, you can't say that. I just effing have said it. Um, he, he wasn't there when I got back. <laughs> I bet he wasn't. It just gets very quiet. Oh. So the, your boat, as far as I understand, the boat, there was no navigational system on there other than what you had in your hand. No weather forecast systems on the boat. It wasn't actually even your first choice boat because you had ideally wanted a bigger boat. Is that right? That's correct. Um I wanted a 56-footer because length means more speed. Yeah. And I, I went out to try and get sponsorship. Rather difficult because I was first officer on the line at Kenya at the time. And you can't follow up leads when you're in Mombasa. So I wrote to 52 companies. They all said no, um, including BBC and ITV, who I asked for a camera. Although later on they said, why didn't you ask us? And I said, do you want to see your letters? <laughs> but... Um, but um, it was, you know, I, I, it wasn't a total disaster. Um, I did get offered a £5 voucher from Cadbury's. 
and um, much more usefully, 120 cans of beer from um, tenants. Uh, <laughs> uh, did, did, but that was the that was the extent of my sponsorship. Did, did the beer make it on board? The beer made it on board, and um, I'll come around to that in a minute. But you know, I just decided, look, I'm going, and that's it. And my company said, look, uh, you can't keep taking time off going sailing. Um, if you're going to do this, we can't keep your job open, which meant I was going to lose all my seniority. And I thought, no, I'm I'm going to do this. And I said, well, you know, what are you going to do? They said, what are you going to do? I said, no, I'm going. They said, well, for goodness sake, be careful. <laughs> which was <laughs> rather a nice comment. So you, you packed in your uh, career and... and, and... Yeah. You went on a journey that no one had ever done before, which honestly, the, the, the chances of death must have been in the back of your mind. Can you tell us a bit about the experience? What are your strongest memories? Well, I think the first thing to say is that the um, you don't think about death, do you? I mean, you think, look, I'm going to go and do this. Um, I've been in the Southern Ocean on merchant ships and briefly with Suheli running Cape Good Hope. Um, I know my boat. I do not know how well she'll stand up to the huge waves down there. And we're talking about 80-foot waves. But nevertheless, um, and of course, in those days, there was no literature to read up on what it was like down there. The best people were the Smeatons who'd been pitch-poled in a bigger boat than mine. Pitch-pole means the stern goes right over the bow and they're rolled over uh, the wrong way. <laughs> I mean, you know, well, talking about huge waves. And I just thought, look, I've got this one opportunity in life to do something that I'm really focused on. If I don't take it, I'll spend the rest of my life regretting I didn't try. Uh, and when you're out there, when, when you were fake, you, you must have been in situations, because the 312 days it took you to get round. You must have been in situations where you thought, what am I doing here? Uh, well, yes, a number of <laughs> occasions. Um, uh, one, I got in a pretty bad storm uh, between Cape Town and Australia. And by this time, I'd lost my radio because the boat had been knocked over and the cabin had shifted, the cabin top had shifted. So water dripped onto the radio. So I lost its ability to transmit. I could receive, but I couldn't transmit. And um, that was a nasty one, actually. See? And that was when... I when I thought, well, I'm not sure we're going to survive. Because you couldn't this. communicate with the outside um, world. Couldn't communicate. There was there were no satellites yeah. then. All I had was a radio that wasn't working, and looking at the weather. I mean, what are the clouds doing? What's the barometer doing? Which direction is the wind coming from? That's all I had to work on, which was enough. But you know, it didn't give you much warning of how close you were to the centre of a low low pressure system in this in the Roaring Forties, which is a horrendously nasty place. So you just had to say, well, oh, those dark clouds are coming in, better get the sails off. We're going to be in for a bit of a hammering. Uh, uh, and uh, and you were, I mean, you know, you got thumped around. Uh, how, and how did, you, I mean, it just terrifies me, but how did you cope when you knew it was coming? And that's that's the thing with, with, with sailing, as you do, you, you can't, there's no way of getting home. You can't swim. You there's no one going to rescue you. How do you deal with that scenario where you, you know it's coming, these waves are coming and the storms are coming and it's just you? Well, you're dependent on yourself, aren't you? Um, 
you have to say, look, I've got to deal with this. Um, no one's going to help me. So I better find a way of dealing with it. I mean, it was like finding that my boat wouldn't lie very comfortably uh, in the really big waves. I mean, she would, she would lie beam on, and that was dangerous. And it took me a while to realize, actually, what I've got to do is make sure she's stern to these waves. And I experimented with a number of things and then put out 700-odd feet of warp out the stern and discovered it was perfect. She swung round, stern to the waves, and frankly, from then on, whenever I got into really bad weather, I'd put the warps out and I'd go to bed because nothing more I can do until this lot's blown over. But the <laughs> dear old girl, she'll survive this. She'll just go on. Oh, so, sorry, when, when the worst of the weather came and the, the situation was as bad as it possibly could be, you went to bed. Well, I couldn't do anything. I mean, you know, if you stay on deck, you're going to be washed off. Uh, or, or bashed by a wave smashing you in, into the cockpit, which happened once or twice. But, you know, you just say, well, I can't do anything. I'm, it's dangerous to me to be on deck. The boat's now at the right angle to these waves. She can't rush down the front of the big ones because the warp's res uh, restricting her. Therefore, best thing I can do is get out of the way and just get some sleep so I'm refreshed. <laughs> For when this storm passes over. I didn't, I didn't even realise you meant you actually got some sleep. I could see, see you batting down in the bed, but you actually, you're calm enough to go to sleep in that situation. Well, you're not calm <laughs> enough, you're tired. <laughs> oh, that is, that is just magic, absolutely magic. So what, what did you, I, I, I've got to touch on one other story that I've heard as well, which is combines two of my biggest fears, one being stuck out in the ocean and two sharks. So there was a scenario whereby you're not only in the middle of the ocean, but you realise your boat was leaking. Is that right? And yeah. you had to realise you had to do something about it and and try to set about doing a repair, which must have been pretty horrendous in itself, out there on your own. And that took you two days, I, I understand. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. The, the, the problem was it was um, the bottom of the boat, about five feet underwater, and I realized, you know, I'm pumping 200 gallons a day. I can't go into the Southern Ocean like this. This occurred uh, before I crossed the equator, in fact, uh, on my way out. And, you know, you realize I've got to do something about it. So I had some copper strip left on board. So I knocked holes in it each side about every inch apart. I had some copper tacks. And um, I tied a hammer onto the boat. And I took the copper strip with the tack in it, you know, took a deep breath, went down, put the first tack in, and then went down and followed on. And I was doing this for about three or four hours. And then this shark came round. And um, he was showing, I thought, um, an un unpleasantly interest in me. And, um, and I thought eventually, I, I, and I've hunted sharks before with a spear gun, but this, you know, you knew when they were getting a bit urgent, time to get out. So um, I climbed out. I hadn't finished the job. I climbed out and he wouldn't go away. So I threw some lavatory paper in the water. And of course, uh, they're scavengers. They came up. He looked at this uh, lavatory paper. I had a rifle and I put a bullet in his head. <laughs> and um, that sort of, well, it didn't just discourage him. It killed him. And um, I waited for a few 
few minutes, like about an hour, make sure no other sharks have come along in case they've been attracted by them. And then I went over and finished the job. But, um, you know, faced with it, what do you do? You say, listen, I've got to deal with this. I, yeah. I can't sit here and say, oh, what do I do? Where's the manual? There's no manual. I've got to work this one out for myself. Uh, it, it's just brilliant. I mean, how big was the shark? He wasn't that big, about eight feet. But I mean, that... <laughs> eight feet. Oh, God. So I, I, I'm quite a keen surfer. So an eight foot shark is the sort of thing that makes me absolutely terrified. So, uh... well, he was big enough to take my leg off. So I thought that's enough. <laughs> that's more than enough. Okay. Uh, brilliant. So, what did you learn from this amazing journey? And how did that help you in the rest of your incredible, incredibly successful life? Well, there's all sorts of things you learn from it. Um, you know, for four and a half months, obviously with no transmitter, I had no contact with anyone. And on Easter Saturday in 1969, I was going past the Azores. There was a big shipping route there. And all I had to signal was a, a signal lamp. And I called up 18 ships. And eventually, about 20 past seven in the evening, a British ship responded. And um, I, I knew he was responding. He said, repeat name. I thought, oh, bless you. And uh, I repeated name and I sent the signal M-I-K, which means please report me to Lloyd's. Um, and he said R, which means received, ETA. And I said two weeks, which nearest guess I can make. Anyway, next morning, Easter Sunday, I'm listening to the radio um, and nothing on the BBC. So I thought, well, he hasn't reported me or someone else has finished already, so no one's interested. In fact, 20 to 9 on Easter Saturday, there was a phone call, and my brother answered the phone to be told I'd been sighted. And, um, you know, the first news of me for four and a half months. Four and a half months? It just, I mean, in this day and age, and we, you can barely go to the loo without somebody contacting you on your phone. It's just beggar's belief, doesn't it, that... For four and a half months, you were there on your own. How did you process that? What did you, did you have a routine every day that kept you stable or? Well, I mean, you're focused on what you're doing. You're sailing this boat. I'm going to go around the world and I'm bloody well going to do it. And, you know, I'll just keep going day by day, 100, 120 miles a day. Just keep plodding along and eventually I'll get back home. But the, the lovely follow-up on that story was it was a wonderful mission to Seaman Padre in Falmouth, a Welshman called David Roberts. And apparently it was on the BBC News that morning. I just didn't pick it up. And he was giving a sermon, and he leapt into the pulpit and said, Have you heard the news? Robin's been sighted. Easter Sunday, most appropriate on the day of the resurrection. <laughs> That is lovely. Absolutely <laughs> lovely. Uh, my father-in-law enjoyed that. He's listened to this. He's Welsh. Okay. Um, Lo lovely man. Oh, brilliant. So, talking of that, um, so isolation is a huge topic at the moment. People are understandably finding it quite challenging, but you were completely isolated for 312 days. What were the, yeah. what were the critical things that kind of got you through that? You've touched on it a little bit, but People are finding now, you know, what have been five, six weeks down the line, 
that isolation is is quite challenging to manage. And these are people with the internet nowadays. Well, look, I mean, first of all, we've got the internet, which is marvellous. Secondly, uh, I said right at the beginning, someone said to me, what would you recommend? I said, get a project. Get yourself something to do. Give yourself something that's going to amuse you, interest you, that you can get up every morning and say, I want to get on with that project. But, you know, quite honestly, I'm hearing so much of people saying, oh, I can't cope with this. And like, you bloody wimps. <laughs> you know, frankly, come on. The people of your generation, I have to say, it's, it was the pioneering, exciting a, a time when people were quite confident to take on these, uh, un, these challenges that no one had ever done before. It's, an, it's amazing. Well, there were a group of us about that time. It was Wally Herbert, who went across the Arctic. Chris Bonington was climbing Mount Everest. Um, there were a number of us. We all became very good friends. I mean, Rand Fiennes. Um, we all, all became really rather good friends, which I think is a wonderful thing, um, because they're lovely people. But we were brought up in a different world. We were brought up, most of us were born just before the war started. Our first memories of the war. Uh, where's your father? Well, he's in the army. I didn't know him till I was eight, really. Um, all of us were brought up with this, well, what are you going to do? We've got a huge empire here. Well, we're going to go out and work in East Africa or India or somewhere like that. And we were brought up with that attitude. The fact that it all disappeared left us saying, well, I still want to do things. And I wasn't alone. All the others were equally involved. We all said, but I'm still going to go and do things. And it's amazing when you look back in the 60s, how many Brits were going out there and setting standards and breaking records. And I think we all brought up the same way, all went to school in the 40s and 50s, but all with that attitude. You know, you remember at prep school, some chap saying was going to join the Mounties. But if you were British then, you could. Yeah. You know, these things were open to us. It, it reminds me of a programme I watched with you uh, 10 years or so ago. Um, and it was an incredible programme. It's a, a series with uh, uh, Savannah Fines and John Simpson and yourself. And the, it was a fascinating concept where you, you took each other into your own worlds, really. So John Simpson took you and Ranat Fines to the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And it was a really hostile programme. Um, and then so, so Ranoff Fines took you, you guys on a polar expedition. But you, 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 you really took the biscuit. You, you sailed them around the Cape Horn, the, the southernmost tip of South America, the most dangerous stretch of planet, uh, of ocean on the planet. And it was a, just an incredible thing to watch you put these two guys through this and then, then enjoy it. How was that experience? Well, I, I think that the first thing we did was went to Kabul. Yeah. And um, it's very funny, actually, because uh, we were stuck in this hotel for five days. And um, John's doing his reports and everything else. And Ran and I got bored. And uh, so we escaped and went into the market, the souk. And I thought I'd buy a Martini Henry rifle, which is a British weapon of about 1880. Anyway, so we went around this souk and... Um, you know, we were bargaining, but we never stayed anywhere more than about four or five minutes. And uh, then we move on. 
Anyway, I, I, all the Martini Henrys I looked at were obviously more modern ones made in Bashaba because they got the wrong sights on them. And eventually we came back to the hotel and the BBC security people went ballistic. <laughs> and they I bet said, they did. They said, you don't know what you're doing. You don't realise it. And I said, oh, hang on. Rand speaks Arabic. I speak Hindi. We both lived out here. We're damn sight safer than you are. Well, that led to a bit of a confrontation, really, because they then said, well, we're going to drive down to um, Jalalabad. We said, you know, having told us that we'd broken their rules for health and safety, Ran and I decided we'd get even. So we said, no, 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 we're not doing that. Um, no, it's too dangerous. Health and safety. I said, well, what do you mean? Health and safety. I said, well, you know, bandits come up. There's only two of you to protect us. Well, we will fight them off. I said, well, suppose there's 40 of them. Well, we'll fight them off. You can't do it. Don't be so stupid. Um, anyway, so Ran and I said, no, we're not going. I said, well, you've got to. It's in the BBC programme. We said, well, we're not going. It's, it's health and safety. So eventually they said, well, what can we do to persuade you to go? So Ran and I said, well, you can arm us. Oh, no, against BBC rules. Can't be armed. So we're not going. And uh, eventually, as we left um, Kabul in this combi, underneath Ran's seat and my seat was a rug. And rolled up inside it was an AK-47 and five magazines. And now we're feeling happy. <laughs> now you're comfortable. But uh, so then what happened? The polar expedition, that, uh, an AK 47 wouldn't have been much used perhaps, but the, the polar expedition was incredible as well. So Serrano Fires took you two out, and that was, that was a hostile environment. It was, we had the worst temperature we had was minus 44. <laughs> um, Ran was absolutely brilliant. John got frostnip, and we had to get him out. John was great. Um, I mean, he's not like Ran and I. We're both adventurers. But, God, he's got guts. And um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, we were having a great time up there, actually. it was. Uh, I think the funniest thing was John and I walking around just before we left, and this Canadian broadcasting team came up and said, um, you know, uh, the new president, Obama, is going to be... Um, inaugurated today and what do you think and I said well I thought that's extremely interesting and he turned to John and said what do you think he said well I've met Obama and you can see them saying who's this guy what's he talking about <laughs> <laughs> of course he met him of course he oh, and how was it taking them round you must have were you slightly apprehensive taking the two of the most famous people ever round Cape Horn or no not in the least worried about it um the you know we had a good boat uh, we had a good crew. Uh, we're just going, you know, not very far. We're going to the Southern Ocean, okay. It was only about four six. I mean, it's not that bad. In fact, my biggest problem was persuading the producer that four six is not a storm. <laughs> and saying, you can't say that's a storm. It's not. But can't we say it right? No, we can't. It's all it's relative. Not. Oh God. So um... the biggest problem was Ran, who, who of course had a number of heart attacks. Um, suddenly making terrible noises behind me. And I thought, Christ, he's having a heart attack. Actually, he was being seasick. And he described that experience on the programme as one of the worst experiences of his life. And this is coming from Serrano Fines, where he was being seasick on, the, on a boat, going around, a, <laughs> going around the, the tip of South America. And uh, 
It's just a, just a brilliant programme. I absolutely loved it. Well, I, I would go anywhere with those two. Um, when we had lunch recently together, I mean, we're still very close friends. But what a great team of people. And um, just putting together what we've done in our lives, you know, it's just fabulous. Oh, it would be amazing to sit around that lunch table with you, you guys. Let's just listen to the stories. It's incredible. So that kind of brings me on to the a similar sort of thing, the Clipper race, which is this race that you, that's your idea. Um, that gives opportunity to um, race around the world over 11 months in, in this hostile environment, in, in the ocean, which they're just not used to. It sounds incredible, but and a life-changing experience, I'm sure, for anyone who does it. But anyone can have an idea. How, how did you make it happen? And how have you kept it going for 25 years? Well, the whole idea started. I was in Greenland with Chris Bonington. We were climbing a mountain there. And he was telling me about climbing Mount Everest. And he's another guy I'd go anywhere with. And, and he told me how much it cost. And I thought, gosh, that's a lot of money. I think it was about 40-something thousand pounds. I thought, that's a lot of money to climb Mount Everest. And I thought, what's the sailing equivalent? It's got to be a circumnavigation. So I sort of did some thinking about it and thought, well, if I was to provide boats and skippers and the training and the food and the clothing and everything else and all the port costs, how much would I have to charge if I, say, had eight boats with, say, 120 people? And I worked out it would cost about half what it costs to climb Mount Everest. So I met up with a person who's become a very close friend, William Ward, and we put the money together and we advertised it. And we got about 8,000 responses, most of whom were not really that interested. But the problem was, now we're committed, because once you've put the idea out there, if you don't do it, someone else will. So we said, well, let's do it. So we, in 11 months, we built eight boats, sorted out the route, trained the crews, got the clothing, got the, got the race sorted out, and we did the first clipper race. And the great thing about the clipper race is this. It's ordinary people doing something exactly. extraordinary. And when you see them at the end of their leg, because some only do legs, and some do the whole thing, and you see them standing there, they're standing a little bit taller. They've done something special with their lives, and they have. And I'm incredibly proud of them. Um, there's over 5,000 5, of them now. Yeah, and I'm incredibly proud of them. And all those people, the last race, well, the current one, we've had to postpone it, of course, yeah. because of the virus. So the fleet's um, stuck in Subic Bay with one of our people looking after them. And we've got to wait until next February before we restart. But <clears throat> all these people are coming through with an experience. Yes, you can buy it. Of course you can. But you've got to have the guts to do it. You've got to have the guts to try it. And it's amazing to me how they measure up, how they rise to the occasion. I remember after a particularly nasty uh, leg, one of the crew coming up to me and saying, God, that's the toughest thing I've ever done in my life. But I feel I'm a proper sailor now. Oh. And I said, and I'm very proud of you. Oh, that's lovely. I mean, that must make you feel very proud that you've, you've allowed 5,000 people the opportunity to go around the world and talk about, must, they must think about that every day that they've done that and have, have, have really changed their lives with that opportunity. That's just an amazing thing, isn't it? 
It is. And when you see them, they come back. I remember a, a girl who was on the first race and she got time off from a company. She was working in a PR company in London. And at the end of the race, I said, what are you going to do now? She said, uh, you know, you're going back to your employers. She said, no, I've not got sufficient confidence to set up my own business. And she turned up for the start of a race about three years later. I said, how are you getting on? She said, Robin, I can't tell you. I'm my own boss. I'm earning twice as much and I'm far more satisfied. And it's down to doing the race. And I thought, do you know, that's the nicest thing I've heard for a long time. Oh, uh, that's, that, that must be quite a common story. If you can achieve that with, with, your, with your backing, you must really can achieve anything. Uh, I think, well, I think they've got to put it in themselves, you know. I mean, they've got to have the, the enthusiasm, determination to do it. And what I love is the fact that how many of them measure up. It's just brilliant. So uh, moving on to now, so you're, you're 81 years old. What motivates you now? If, if we weren't in lockdown, would you still be sailing now? Well, can I correct you? Yeah. Um, I reckon I'm 51 <laughs> plus 31 years of experience. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. I like that. And um, what am I doing? Well, I've been in lockdown for eight weeks, um, which is very frustrating because I couldn't go around and check my boats. But tomorrow I can. Um, Wednesday we're allowed out, so I'm going over to check them. Um, you know, we'll get the boats sorted out, uh, my own personal boats. The moment we're allowed free, I'm off. I should go sailing. Um, I don't know quite how I'll fill the rest of the year. I might go out to India because I lived there, built a boat there. I've got very good friends there. And I've got a very good friend, the first Indian to sail around the world single-handed, uh, which I assisted a bit uh, with the Indian Navy. Um, we might just go and cruise some of the southwest coast of India, which I'd love to do. My experience was north of India. And go and just spend time with a good friend and then come back. But, um, and then looking forward, um, there's another route to run. That's the single-handed race across the Atlantic. Uh, I think it's, what, uh, 22. Uh, I'm just starting to look around to see what boat I can get. <laughs> Sorry. So because... you're, you're, you're tempted to do this again, are you? To cross the Atlantic. Oh, oh well, why not? I mean... <laughs> and, uh... How old will you be in, 1920, in 2022? Uh, I'll, I'll be 53. <laughs> so you're going to take this on again. Where does it leave and where does it, where does it end up? It ends up in Guadeloupe. It's a French-organised race. It's such fun. And it's an interesting route. It's late in the year, so you go south to avoid the storms. But it's um, it's a fabulous race. And typically with the French, with their enthusiasm. It's one of those things that um, you actually enjoy doing. Is this the one you did in 2015 when you were named Yachtsman of the Year again? Yeah. Same one. Yeah, same one. Same one. But I, I missed the last one. I wanted to do it, but um, I was a bit busy with other things. But looking at my programme now, I'm just looking around for about a 45-foot trimaran because I found the 60-footer getting a bit hard on my muscles. Right. And, you know, if you're not sailing it every day, your muscles relax too much and then you start pulling things. So I thought 45 foot try, that'll do it. So I'm now searching Google, looking around the world for interesting, reasonably fast, you know, something that's competitive, 
uh, gives me a chance because without a chance, why are you doing it? You've got to yeah. feel, hey, you guys, if you pull out, I'm going to still be there. How, how many boats have you got now? Well, I've got two. I've got Suheli, which I took around the world, well, 50 so years ago. So you've still got Suheli, which is that boat that you built yourself in India and yeah. took it around the world with you for that year. You've kept on to, you, you, you kept it the whole, the whole time. You haven't let it go and brought it back. Well, no, well, for a while, she was in the National Maritime Museum. Right. But um, they had a problem because of Legionnaire's disease. She's a wooden boat, and a wooden boat has to be kept moist. And they said, well, we can't do that. And I said, right, I'm taking her back. Um, so I've recommissioned her. She's in good nick. I mean, tomorrow, actually, I could go and take her out sailing. But um, at present, we're not sure if lockdown means we can't go out sailing. But at least I can go and work on it. My other boat's a bigger one, um, 56 feet. But I got everything on board. I mean, two years ago, we went up to Greenland in her and uh, got as far as Scoresby Sund, went diving under icebergs. Um, we had a fabulous time up there. You know, <laughs> Sorry, t- two this, years ago, you this, went diving under icebergs? Well, come on. Life is there to be lived, isn't it? It is, but, I mean, I, I, have, I have actually, a very long time ago, kayaked around some icebergs in, in, in southern Chile, and they're quite terrifying things because... It is true. They they are massive objects, and they look what what you see on the surface. I know it's a cliche, but it is relatively small, and underneath they are a vast thing that are quite unpredictable. Well, you're quite right. I mean, the the thing about icebergs is they are unpredictable because the bit underwater is melting, and suddenly they'll lose stability and they'll roll. Yeah. And of course, don't go too close because. Um, if you do, it'll roll on top of your boat. When Chris and I went up there in 1991, I think, uh, to climb this mountain, we came across our first iceberg, and I said, here's a great opportunity, Chris. We've got all this vodka on board, which has been given to us. What we need is some decent ice. So I got in the dinghy and went over to this iceberg, and I hit it with a climbing pick. God, I thought my arm was going to break. And that made me angry, so I really attacked it and uh, got some ice. And as I went back towards Suheli, there was Chris quietly laying the glasses out and pouring the vodka in. Then we put this ice in. Now, this ice became ice about a 1,000 years ago. And as you put it into the vodka, it hissed. And there's a 1,000-year-old air coming out. And I, I don't know what it was about it. Maybe where we were, slightly romantic and all the rest. But that, I've never tasted of, of vodka so enjoyable as that. Oh, that's just... So you're, you're, you're on Suheili, which is your boat that you went around the world in. You're with... Is it, when you say Chris, you mean say Chris Bonington, do you? Yeah. You're with yeah. Chris Bonington. You're in Greenland. You've chunked a bit of ice off an iceberg. <laughs> and you're drinking a vodka. I mean, it's just... That's just a lovely visual image, I have to say. <laughs> well, <laughs> Chris got really, he really entered into it. And, until we landed, um, and we've got quite a long way to go, so we're pulling pulks, you know, with all our kit on board. And, of course, I'd never done this before. And um, he was totally ruthless with me. He made me carry God knows how much up to the place here. And, of course, you, you, um, you don't... Uh, pull the pulps during the daytime because the ice, the snow is soft, and um, if you're going across a crevasse, 
it's uh, a bit soft. You wait till nighttime and that's when you move. And it took us about four or five days to get up to this particular spot below the mountain. But I have to say, Chris was the most delightful companion. And, you know, on the boat, he did what I told him. And ashore, I did what he told me. Oh, that's just great. Uh, just mutual respect, well earned, I would say. So, Well, if you've ever been climbing, I'll tell you what, there's no better person to go with than Chris. You're one of the best in the world. No, absolutely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Brilliant. Okay, so is there any advice you can share with others? Clearly, you've lived an incredible life, incredible life, and you've got the most out of it. And still going forwards, looking to go to India later this year, to planning for two years' time, another um, transatlantic race. What advice can you share with others? Listen, my advice to anyone is don't listen to other people. Decide what you want to do. Believe in yourself and do it. Because there are so many people out there who will tell you you can't and will poo-poo it and everything else. There's a wonderful poem by um, an American called Shel Silverstein. He wrote that uh, pop song called A Boy Named Sue. You may have heard oh, of it. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's dead. And he wrote a poem, and it basically goes, listen to the mustn'ts, child. Listen to the won'ts. Listen to the shouldn'ts, the impossibles, the won'ts. Listen to the don't-haves, then listen close to me. Everything is possible. Anything can be. And I would put that up in every school. I'd put it up in every health and safety and bureaucrat's office, but they wouldn't understand it. But get that across to young people. Say, believe in yourself. When people tell you you can't do something, hold on, I think I can. Well, go for it. Because even if you don't succeed... You've learned so much from trying, you'll succeed the next time. In other words, just go for things in life. If you think you can do it, go for it. Oh, Robin, this is, this is just magic, absolutely magic. I really, I really appreciate you giving this advice to everyone. Uh, with, just to finish, regarding sailing, that's the question I like to finish with. Do you still enjoy it? Um. My big problem is someone said to me, are you, getting in, are you going sailing at the moment? I said, not enough. <laughs> so you, if you could, would you just spend all your time sailing? Oh, I wish. I mean, there's so many parts of the world you can get to with a yacht. And you say, so many bits of the world I've raced around that I'd like to go back and look at. And, uh, well, I hope I'm going to be spared long enough to do it. Well, I hope you are too. I mean, you've got... Plans coming up. India is a place close to my heart. I've been there myself. It's a fantastic country. And I wish you all the best with that later, in this, later this year. We'll be following you with the next race across the, uh, across the Atlantic and looking forward to the Clipper race starting up again. Um, Robin, I don't want to take up any more of your time. And I genuinely, genuinely appreciate you taking the time to talk to us all. I really appreciate it. Thank you ever so much. No, it's been great fun. But, you know, take my advice. What are you doing? When are you going off adventuring again? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I'll, I'll take your advice and think about it, but it's, it's brilliant. Absolutely lovely. lovely. Now, you see, the trouble, trouble is your generation have become too focused on all these funny things, which I have trouble understanding, of course, 
you know, with all this internet and everything else. And you're focused on that. And you're not realizing there's a real world out there waiting for you. Go out and explore it. Go for it. Brilliant. Okay, well, I would take that on board and I'll pass that message on to everyone I meet. Robert, I really appreciate your time. Thank you ever so much. My pleasure. Take care. Cheerio. You You too. Bye. Well, what an experience. I thoroughly enjoyed that from start to finish. I could have listened to Sir Robin talk for hours. Straight talking and clear thinking. Absolutely incredible stories, brilliantly told and with a profound message. To look down less at technology and look up more at the natural world around us and seek adventure within it. Believe in yourself and don't listen to anyone who says you can't. Thank you, Sir Robin.